0: Good morning Liberty. How are y'all doing? Good. We're back in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 5. You can turn there if you'd like. And the kids can head to class. Starting in verse 5. and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for gathering together the saints, not just in this church, but in churches across this nation and in churches across this world. Some of them have already had their services, some of them are preparing for their services, but we thank you, God, that we can lift up our voices to proclaim to you that you are God, that you are the Great One, that there is no other name by which we must be saved but by the name of Jesus Christ. So let truth go out from the pulpits today across this world. Let truth be implanted in the hearts of those that know you. We pray, Lord, for those that don't, that they would hear the word, be convicted of their sin, and repent, Lord, and turn to you. Lord, bless our service now, bless this sermon, God, bless the preaching of your word. We want to know what you have for us, God, so give us a heart to receive for your glory. Amen. Uh, when I was in college, I was I was this close, actually, to entering, um, to getting a... Uh, and going on to law school so I was this close to going into pre-law and I actually ended up doing um, an internship Um, my dad was an attorney for about 40 years before he retired so I did an internship uh, one summer in college uh, for his law firm and learned a whole lot of interesting things kind of the ins and outs of practicing law um, decided ultimately that that was not the path that God wanted for me Um, but I learned a whole lot and one of the things I learned and you might already know it but Uh, Most cases are settled outside of the courtroom. Like the vast majority of cases uh, never end up having their day in court, so to speak. And you might say, well, why is that? And I asked my dad that numerous times in various ways, and the answer was always because you you never know how the judge is going to decide. So he had cases where he was completely confident, you know, 99.999% 99.999% that he was going to win those cases. And he lost them. And then he had other cases where he was like, oh man, I've I just, I'm, we're kind of, you know, going on a prayer here, basically. And he would end up winning those cases. And so um, <clears throat> lawyers quickly have realized that uh, it's not always in the client's best interest to have their day in court because it's better to know. Uh, and kind of control the outcome than to leave it in the hands of a judge who you don't know which way that judge might decide. And think about it for a moment. Consider what a judge actually, actually does. Like he passes judgment, right? He gets the information that's given to him. He's getting both sides. Proverbs talks about that, right? The first side always seems right until the second is questioned. So he gets both sides of the argument. It's Hopefully presented in a, in a fair and accurate way, not always. But then he passes judgment, and what's the result? Well, sometimes it's a guilty verdict. The person being judged is is sent to prison. Um, that's certainly negative. But sometimes the judgment is positive, right? Not not always, but sometimes the judge um, doesn't pass a guilty, guilty verdict. He passes a, a judgment of. Not guilty, right? So that judgment is positive and righteous and releasing. And here's the thing the judgment of God is similar when we think about a judge and what he does in a courtroom because God, as a judge, has judgments that have both aspects to it. God's judgment can be releasing and freeing. That's the one hand, the innocent. But God's judgment can also be condemning and painful and ultimately full of wrath. That's the guilty. But here's what it always is, and this is important. Okay? So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Here's what it always is. His judgment is always righteous and just. It is always righteous and just, always without question. And when it comes to God's judgment, there's there's two parties to be judged. There's going to be believers. Believers will be judged, and unbelievers will be judged. So you've got two parties. That's where um, Jesus, and we're going to look at it in a second, talks about the sheep and the goat. But when we're talking about parties to be judged, then you talk about the judgment itself. And there's going to be two aspects to that judgment. There's a positive aspect, which we will call salvation. That's what the Bible calls it. And there's a negative aspect called condemnation. So there's salvation and condemnation. Look at verse 6, and we see, uh, we see this. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So they, the, the, the unbelievers afflicted the believers. That's what it says back in verse 4. They're dealing with persecutions and afflictions coming from unbelievers. But now the unbelievers get their own affliction. God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This word just, your version might have a similar word, but it is the exact same word that we see in verse 5 where it's translated righteous. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. So God's judgment is righteous and God considers it righteous or just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. That's the first part. That's the first aspect. Repay with affliction. But then go on. Look at verse 7. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. To grant relief. Now here's something to notice. We've got we to read this in the context because here's what I want us to see. It says, Indeed, God considers it just... To repay with affliction, okay, so that he considers that just. But look, look what he also considers just. God considers it just to grant relief to you who are afflicted. Okay, so it, it is—it's loving, sure, but God considers it just. It is a righteous thing for God to grant relief to those who are afflicted. Who are those afflicted? The believers, and He is considering it just. It is a just and righteous thing for God to grant relief. It's the same thing. That we see in, in 1 John. Uh, turn there briefly. In 1 John chapter 1, it says If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all Unrighteousness. Again, notice that word just. It's, it's the same. You could translate it righteous. But so God is just to forgive us our sins. Now, He's loving as well. But a lot of times, what you see in the scriptures when it's talking about forgiveness of sins, when it's talking about the payment for sin, when it's talking about how God looks at us, the key word that we see is not loving. That loving is when He sends His Son to atone for the sin and, and live the perfect life and pay for our sins. But in His interactions with us, it's described as just and righteous. Now, why is that? Because God has declared us, that's justification, he's declared us to be righteous in his sight. All those things happen because of what Christ already did. So because Christ did those things, it you could call it fair, but it is righteous and just for God to see the sinner and declare him to be righteous. Why? Because of what Christ accomplished for us. It will always be righteous and just. Look at Psalm chapter 9. Here's what David said in verse 3, Psalm 9. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. And over and over and over, this is the thing that we see from the very beginning, Genesis, all the way through to Revelation, God's judgment is righteous every single time. And all of us will face a judgment. Look at Matthew 25. This is talking about the end in verse 31. Says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Okay, so all the nations, does that include everyone? Yeah. All the nations. And he's going to separate one from another. Look what he says in 33. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Okay, so there's going to be a separation occurring. This is judgment. Now there's three things I want us to observe today about God's judgment. First, God's judgment is sound. His judgment is sound. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't err. And he always makes the right decision. Okay? He can't be bribed. He can't be controlled to do a certain thing. He will always make the right decision. He will always judge righteously. Actually, one of my favorite verses is in Genesis 18. Uh, turn there. This is when Abraham is interceding for Sodom. So he's he's looking there and he says in 23, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And then he starts to essentially try to bargain with God. And he starts out with, if there's 50 righteous people, will will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? And look what he says in verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. And then I just love this last sentence. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And I remember reading that as a, as a younger believer when I was reading through Genesis one time and just realizing like, yeah, that is, that is, that is God. That, that is God. He, he's not going to lump the righteous and the wicked together and just make one judgment on both of them. No, I mean, He separates. Even if you go on with the story, you know, it gets all the way down, you know, how about 40, 35, right? <clears throat> even then, God keeps agreeing green out of grace and mercy. But even then, there, you can't even find 10 in the city. But what does God do with with the few righteous that are there? He still saves them and gets them out of there, right? Even that he didn't have to do, but he, he does. An aspect we see of God's grace and mercy. But the point is, is that the judge of all the earth does do what is righteous and just. Abraham knew this and he experienced it. We need to make sure that we ourselves know this in our head and in our heart. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul knows that his time is is wrapping up on this earth. He says in verse 6 of chapter 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved is appearing so at the end of the age God is going to set all things right he will set all things right all things not some things not many things but all things and and, and here we see believers have a reward waiting for them it's the crown of righteousness the crown of righteousness so you, you have a crown waiting for you and God will Be just and righteous in his judgment. So God's judgment is sound. And overall, when we talk about rewards and punishments, you get one of two things. You get one of two things. The believer gets eternal life with Jesus forever. Okay, That's on the one side. On the other, you get punishment and hell and the lake of fire forever. Now, when it's put like that, it seems like a pretty obvious choice to make, right? Right? Yet people don't make that choice in the positive. They choose hell and the lake of fire. Why is that? Well, there's many reasons. Pride, sin, selfishness. But there's only one of two paths for each person in this room. On Judgment Day, we will receive one of two things. An eternal life with Jesus or an eternal death apart from Jesus. Back in Thessalonians, if you look there, that's why it says in verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Okay? Okay. So they'll be out of his loving presence. They'll be out of his merciful presence. They'll be out of his gracious presence. And they will suffer an eternal destruction. How long is an eternal destruction? Eternal, yeah, forever. Just want to make sure we're clear on that. So, looking on at verse 10, Notice what happens for us. Verse 9 is about unbelievers. Verse 10, When He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. When is that going to happen? Well, ultimately on the last day. But here's what I want to say. You know, relief is coming. Relief is coming. It is right around the corner and it is very, very near. It is nearly here, okay? So we need to persevere and we need to hold on and we need to press on. The persecution and affliction that we have now that is going to grow in uh, intensity, it pales in comparison with the glory and joy awaiting us. So press on and make it. Persevere. Hold on to the end. Be faithful. Do what Paul said he did. Finish the race. Fight the good fight. Second, not only is God's judgment sound, God's judgment is secure. What do I mean by that? Nothing will change it. Okay. If you are a believer, he's not going to change his mind on judgment day. If you're an unbeliever, no amount of crying or complaining or Reasoning is going to change his mind either. He has guaranteed justice in all of its forms. Justice for the believer. Justice for the unbeliever. Notice what it says again. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. There is nothing unsure about this. It is quite certain. It will happen. But also notice this. Our salvation is secure. Is God going to change his mind? No. Second Corinthians 1, all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. Every single one of them. We can make a long, long, long list, and they're out there. Every single one of those promises in Christ, God is faithful. He will hold to it. He will fulfill every one of it, including our salvation being secure. All this talks about, when we're talking about justice, when we're talking about being just and righteous, This is talking about justification, which is a declarative judgment. We're back to the courtroom, essentially. And it's where God declares the believer not guilty. You're in the courtroom. The evidence has been presented. And we have justification. That's the big fancy word. What is justification? It's a legal act. A legal act of God where he... Declares us to be righteous in his sight. He declares it. And he thinks of our sins as forgiven. and he, he sees us. And he's like, wow, he sees us, and it's as if our sins have been forgiven because of what Christ has done, because in fact they are. And he sees us, and it's as if we have the righteousness of Christ because we do. So it's a declarative act. And here's the thing it's instantaneous. You know, sometimes they present the evidence to the judges. And, and, and it can be weeks. You know, you think of some of these big Supreme Court cases. They might not render judgment for another month or two months, sometimes even longer. But God's judgment is instantaneous. It's a declarative act that he makes it right away. He doesn't have to deliberate. He doesn't have to give it any thought. Why? Because he's already accomplished everything that he wants to accomplish through his son Jesus Christ for you. Everything that he wants to accomplish has been accomplished through his son, Jesus. So God justifies those. How does he do it? Through Christ. How is it appropriated to us? By faith. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All. Are you part of the all? That's right. So am I. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then notice verse 24 and are justified by his grace as a gift. So so justification, God declaring us righteous, that's a gift. It's not something that we've earned were justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, He justifies us by His grace as a gift. How? Through Christ Jesus. Then go on. This is great stuff here. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. What's a propitiation? It, it's a sacrifice to appease God. A sacrifice to appease God. God put forward... So, I mean, God is... the. You notice God's doing all the work here, right? right? We are justified. That's in the passive voice. Well, Who's doing the justification? God. We're justified. God's doing it. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, God's doing, putting forward the propitiate. He, he puts his own son forward as the sacrifice to re, be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that it might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice that what it says at the end. The one who has faith in Jesus. God justifies those who trust in Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, God declares you righteous. How is this appropriated? Turn two chapters over. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That's how it's appropriated to us. Through our faith that we have, the justification is given. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Friends, this, this isn't about works. There's no works involved here. We haven't even touched on works. We haven't looked at works. There's no mention of works. You can't read through Romans and, and come to that conclusion that works are involved in any sense. Look back at Romans chapter three, because I want you to see this. Romans chapter three, verse 20, "For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight." Did you read that? For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Galatians says something similar, but I I want us to read it and hear it and see it. So look at Galatians. Galatians chapter 2. He starts in verse 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. How are we not justified? By works of the law. Then he goes on. But through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I mean, three different times he says in one verse, you're not justified by works. Three different times. He wants to make it crystal clear to the Galatians and to us. Now, why is this so important for us to understand? Because it's a salvation issue. I mean, it's a salvation issue. This is primary important stuff that we're dealing with. We need to know uh, what we're saved from, from God's wrath from an eternal destruction, from damnation, from hellfire. We need to know who we're saved from. You ever thought about that? Who are we saved from? Now, some people might say, well, we're saved from ourselves. I mean, there's truth in that, but ultimately we're actually saved from God himself. We're saved from God himself because we're enemies of God as unbelievers. We're enemies of his. So we we actually have to be saved from him. Christ intervenes to save us from the wrath of God. We have to be saved from that. And this issue, this issue of justification, many of you are like, oh man, I've heard this before. Well, that's good. Make sure you're living it. But this issue is under attack. I mean, you don't think Satan wants confusion on this issue because some people are like, oh, you're saved by faith. Other people are saved by faith and works. And other people are like, oh, you're just saved by works. If you're just a good person, you're going to go to heaven. So you got faith, faith and works, and just works. I mean, there's confusion on this, even in churches, sadly. All those verses we just looked at, there's a pretty clear conclusion there, friends. Pretty clear conclusion. We're saved by faith. Rome argues differently. Liberals argue differently. Uh, But there's this little thing a few hundred years ago called the Protestant Reformation. Maybe you heard of it. What was the thing that, that Martin Luther saw in the scriptures? Justification. It was this issue, it was about righteousness before God. That's what he struggled with. He had a works mentality. What did he see in Romans, all those verses that we just read? What did he see in Galatians, those verses we just looked at? Justification by faith. Varna, uh, who's, who's well known for doing surveys on different church issues, recently did a survey of professing Christians. So why is this important to understand? Because uh, what professing Christians believe is, is alarming in many aspects. 58% this was a very recent study within the past year 58% contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being but is merely a symbol of God's power presence or purity I mean so they wouldn't believe in the Trinity you know one God three persons uh, 58% also believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things they can earn their way into heaven Did any of our verses suggest anything like that? Not at all. All right, straight from the word. 57% believe in karma. You know, they're more Hindus than they are Christians. And here's the thing: pastors can't force anyone in their church to believe anything. Right? But they sure can give them a steady diet of the truth. And that, by and large, sadly, is not happening. So you get sermons about five reasons to have joy or six reasons to love your neighbor or seven reasons to be a better worker or eight ways to serve your family. And there's a place for those occasionally, I would say. But by and large, solid theology is missing from the pulpits. And it's really sad. James 3 says, "...let not many of you be teachers." what's the reason for it? In James, he gives the reason. They will incur the stricter judgment. So a lot of times that's applied to pastors, which it should be. But think about it. What are parents doing? Right? They're teaching. So we're all teachers in, in various senses. But but teachers, for sure, pastors, people preaching the word week after week will be held accountable, including myself. So judgment is sound, it's secure. Finally, judgment is salvific. For believers, judgment day is not a day to fear. It is not a day to fear. Look back at Second Thessalonians. Look what the response is when Jesus comes back in verse 10. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and look at this friends and to be marveled at among all who have believed. There's not cowering. There's marveling. When he returns we will be in awe. We will have reverence. And here's the interesting thing. Uh, Paul is referencing here Psalm 68 where the literal translation would be God, this is Psalm 68, God will be marveled at in the presence of His Holy Ones. Similar wording here, um, the Lord, now he's applying it to Jesus, the Lord will be marveled at among all who have believed. Once again, 1 Thessalonians we saw it and here we see it already a a few times even in chapter 1. Paul takes an Old Testament text that originally refers to God and applies it to Christ. So, again, we see the deity of Christ being shown to us and being alluded to. So judgment is salvific. Friends, God will vindicate His people. He will vindicate his people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter thirty two. This is the song of Moses. We're going to start in verse 40. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. This is God speaking. It's the song of Moses. God will vindicate his people. God will have a righteous judgment, both for believers and both for unbelievers here's the thing for us one when we believe this it's like a confession of faith in god because we're trusting that he will take care of things the way they need to be taken care of we're saying you know we know you won't let us down lord you will see us all the way to the end we know you won't forsake us what does Hebrews say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's quoting the Old Testament. We know you will set things right, Lord. That's the first thing. But second, we need to make sure that we have our own house in order before the Lord comes back. Scripture doesn't allow us to shirk responsibility for our sins. As believers, what does Paul say elsewhere in Romans? Well, uh, if grace abounds, I mean, I guess I could just keep sinning, right? I could take advantage. I'm, gonna, I'm forgiven. No, he says if you do that, you better be careful because you might not really be a believer. So scripture doesn't give us any room to shirk responsibility for our sins. It doesn't give us any room to make excuses for why we are certain, uh, prone to certain sins. And it doesn't give us any room to shirk responsibility. Because we always want to point the finger at someone or something else. That's just the way I am. That's just the way I was made. That's just the way I was born. God made me this way. Well, God didn't make you to be a lying jerk who treats people poorly and doesn't love others. Okay? He didn't do that. So we can't, we can't just point the finger at someone or something else. The, the way we were raised, the environment in which we were raised, the parents we had or didn't have. Look, all of us have, can have great, great, great excuses for the way we did or didn't turn out. But that's all it is, is excuses. And at some point, we have to take ownership for who we are and what we do. That's tough. That's not pretty. But the thing I encourage with, with my kids, when they're trying to make excuses, I just say, hey, just, you got to own your sin. If you've sinned, you got to own it. Don't say, oh, my brother, or if this person wouldn't have said this, or if this wouldn't have happened, or... No. Like, own your sin. Meaning, take responsibility for it. And I don't know how much sin y'all got in your lives, but I got enough that I need to take ownership of and make sure that I'm dealing with it and not blame it on other people in my life. People that are close to me, people that are far away, people that hurt me 15 years ago. That, that's shirking responsibility. God wants us to take ownership for our sin. He wants us to take responsibility for our sin. We can we can only deal with with the sin that we have. God has to deal with other people and the sin they they got, but we got to deal with we got to deal with our sin. We got to deal with it. So deal with it. Last question: Why does God delay justice? I mean, have you ever wondered why God delays justice? I mean, I, I mean, if it was up to me, like, you know, <clears throat> I could think of a lot of people who should get their due comeuppance. But He delays justice. Why is that? I mean, how many of you got saved after the age of, you know, forty, or thirty, or twenty? I mean, I got saved after the age of 18. What if God had judged you before that time? Now, he would have been completely just in doing so. But he waited, and he delays. He delays for your sake. That's who he delayed for, and he delays for others' sake. Look at what 2 Peter says. It says it quite clearly. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. Okay, so from our viewpoint, we're like, oh, when are you going to do this, Lord? When are you going to do this? When, when are you going to fulfill these different promises, right? The scriptures are telling us, hey, he's not slow to fulfill his promises. Some of slowness, but he's patient toward you. Think about that. So there's promises, but there's patience as well. And guess what? God's had, had, had to have a whole lot of patience with all of us. A whole lot of patience. Uh, the King James, I like the King James word. It's most appropriate. Long-suffering. Long-suffering. If you've ever really had to be patient, it it is long-suffering. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, look at this, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why is He patient? He doesn't want people to perish. He wants people to repent. Same thing in Romans 2. You can just listen to it. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Which is what Jesus hits on in the Sermon on the Mount. Who does the rain fall on according to Jesus? The just and the unjust. The righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, some people call that like a common grace. Like God even blesses unbelievers. The fact that they wake up, most unbelievers will wake up tomorrow morning, is one more sign of God's goodness, even to them. It's one more sign of his long-suffering, of him being patient. It's one more sign of his kindness, which Romans says is meant to lead them to repentance. So what's coming Well, on the one hand, affliction is coming. On the other hand, relief is coming. Who gets the affliction? The unbelievers. Who gets the relief? Believers. We have to remember, God will take care of all of this. He will give vengeance to those who deserve vengeance. That's why he says what? Vengeance is mine. I will repay Okay, and here's the thing it will be measured out appropriately and carried out righteously, neither of which any of us in our own strength and power can do. But remember this whichever way the scales of justice tip right now, however imbalanced those scales might be, however heavy one side might be weighted down where it's clear evil men have done evil things and gotten away with it, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. The scales will be righted. Romans 2.5 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, if God never dealt with all the wrongs going on in this earth, then we could lay blame potentially at His feet. But He has appointed a day. Everyone gets their day in court, so to speak, Right? Even the criminal, even when all the evidence is stacked against him, um, his judgment is actually delayed. And and actually in our system, it can be delayed for years and years and years. Even a convicted criminal on death row might not receive his full punishment for decades. But he receives it. So whichever way those scales are tipped, the scales will be righted. God has appointed a day for each person to have their day in court, so to speak. For the judgment to occur. And he says, the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That day of wrath is a day that believers do not have to fear. Because for us, it's a day of salvation. For us, His judgment is salvific he will he will judge us to be righteous as he already has he will judge us to have the righteousness of christ not a righteousness of our own that comes from works or anything that we've done or any merit that we've earned but a righteousness which comes from christ we get what christ gets and christ gets what we have he gets our sin we get his righteousness so the judgment is a judgment of salvation It's a sound judgment, and it's a secure judgment. Let's continue to entrust our souls to a God who is a good and gracious God, who is a faithful judge. And this judge will do exactly as he has promised. So let's continue to stick to the promises of God. Let's continue to hold on to them. Let's continue to to run the race that is set before us. Whatever might be entangling us, as Hebrews talks about, what are we supposed to do with it? We're supposed to throw it off. Cast it away. Get rid of it. That's where we're taking ownership for our sin and we're doing something about it. And all of us got sin we can deal with. All of us got sin we can, we can uh, knock down. We can destroy like the idols that we might have. But we have a, a God who is faithful, who in that same passage says, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. I will be with you till the end. And that is the hope that we have in Christ. That whatever might come in this earthly life, God will walk with us and God will walk us through it every step of the way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious judge who judges way better than we ever could we thank you that you are righteous and true that you take the righteousness of christ and you give it to us thank you father that you're a god who saves that you are a god who is patient you were patient with us some for decades and decades patient suffering long seeing us in our sin, and still having mercy and grace and kindness. And we pray for our friends, our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors who don't know you, that they would see your kindness and it would lead them, as Romans says, to repentance. Bring them to repentance, Father. Bring them to acknowledge you and your son, Jesus. Have mercy on them as you've had mercy on us. Save them, Father. And we thank you, Lord, that the day of judgment is a day we don't have to fear. And we can have confidence not in ourselves, but in you, the just and righteous God. That if we are found in Christ, then there is no fear on that day. That if we have Jesus as our Savior, we have no need to cower on that day. We can have complete confidence, not because of anything we've done, but complete confidence in what Christ has already done for us. Father, you are so, so good to us. Continue to show us that. Continue to remind us of that. Continue to rain out upon us the riches of Christ in complete fullness. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.